Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2019. Be prepared. Well, today I'll say be prepared to be energized. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars. Yeah, guess what? Today I'm in London, England. What a beautiful place with a very special guest by the name of Jonathan Carrier. Jonathan, welcome to Cars. Yeah, do you have any gear and are you ready to release the clutch? I absolutely am, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Now, I know you've had a very busy day. You've been in lots of meetings today, so um, we're going to have a little fun, kind of let your hair down a little bit. I always say that because I wish I had some hair to let down, but we're going to have fun talking about a very cool device that your company has created. But before I introduce you and we dive into that, what's one little thing that most people may not know about you, Jonathan? That one of my ancestors is in the uh, House of Horrors at Madame Tussauds in London. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, now you got my curiosity peaked. Uh, <laughs> is this a, uh, a one of your um, uh, family members that you don't want to usually talk about? Or, yeah? yeah? Typically, okay. you can look him up. He's a, he, I mean, it's like you'll be talking several generations past the French Revolution. You know, he was, well, during the French Revolution, he's called Jean-Baptiste Carrier, and uh, he um, was rather evil uh, in his actions of killing innocent people and priests and so forth and eventually he was beheaded uh and that's why his head is on a spike not far from marie antoinette as well oh, in the gosh. in the in the dungeon at uh at uh, madame to swords oh my gosh wow well yeah that's uh that's rather interesting so uh, yeah there's a, there's a, there's an unusual one for probably for one of your podcasts uh that is probably <laughs> one of the more if not the most unusual answer to that question i've gotten some pretty interesting answers to that question and some people are a little shy about it but yeah that's that's got to be a first yeah my ancestor's head is on a stake so there you go <laughs> wow <laughs> well let's talk about something that's very energizing here and i'll give you a proper introduction jonathan carrier is the co-founder of zip charge the world's first portable ev charger a portable power bank on wheels if you will zip charge enables ev drivers to charge wherever they're parked it's a revolutionary product removing the common barriers to ev ownership, bringing the possibilities of home charging to anyone who cannot currently plug in at home or their office. Jonathan is over 20 years in the global automotive industry, working for Fiat, McLaren, Jaguar, Land Rover, and global product strategy, developing some of the world's most iconic vehicles. Jonathan founded In Motion Ventures for JLR, building and investing in mobility startups, and has worked since in transportation innovation, developing flying cars, that's right, for urban air mobility, and planning lithium-ion battery gigafactories. This guy's been busy. He has supported numerous mobility startups as an advisor and a non-executive director. We'll be back in just a minute to learn a lot more about Jonathan and ZipCharge, but first a word from our valued sponsor, so give them a little love, and we'll be right back. Covercraft's newest three-layer all-climate cover is especially engineered for moderate weather conditions, and it's treated 
with an extra UV-resistant formula. It's soft, it's breathable, and it's easy to store, all while pampering your paint, providing maximum UV rain and dust protection. If you live where it's windy, no worries. Simply add their gust guards for windy conditions to add extra protection to keep your cover in place. Your three-layer all-climate cover is custom-tailored with Covercraft's attention to detail, form and fit with the quality and attention to detail that's been their tradition since 1965. Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft, too. Every one of my vehicles is protected with a Covercraft cover. And I have a deal for you. Use the code yeah 21 Y-E-A-H-21 at Covercraft.com and you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order plus free shipping. That's right. So get 10% off with free shipping by simply using the code yeah 21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. When it was time to renew my collector car policy, my carrier raised my rates by a lot. But why? My usage was the same, my car's value was the same, and I had never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. The only change was their rate, and they had no reason why. What's with that? I researched my options, I spoke to others, and with American Collectors Insurance is where I now have my policy. What a difference. A live person actually answers the phone. She spent time learning about me and my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my orange crush, and provided a reasonable quote. American Collectors Insurance now protects my special ride. I'm saving hundreds of dollars and I can sleep at night knowing my baby is properly insured. Why wait until your next premium is due? Give them a call today for your personal agreed value quote. Call 866-AC1-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine. Mark Green at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. So, Jonathan, let's uh, dive a little deeper into this very fascinating career. You're a guy who likes to go out there and be adventurous, maybe not quite as crazy as uh, some of your distant relatives were, uh, and in a much more positive way. Uh, let's talk, before we get into zip charts here, because I really want to dive into this, give me a little bit more of your background, because you've worked in the automotive sectors and in startups and flying cars. Oh, my gosh, you've been a busy guy. Yeah, well, I've always been passionate about things that move, um, you know, and I've been besotted with cars since I was three years old. I could name every car on the road when I was three. Uh, and whilst car wasn't my first word, it's absolutely been at the heart and center of pretty much everything I've done. That made my kind of journey through school and education relatively simple because I only had one focus, which was how do I work in the car industry? And therefore, that led me to do an engineering degree, um, mechanical engineering, which is kind of out of favor at the moment because everything's electric you know, electronic. But actually, when you train as an engineer, and I encourage anybody that would be thinking about an education to do engineering, because it's a great discipline to help you think about problem solving and how you approach a problem and how you analyze a situation, but also then you determine outcomes. And that can be applicable in every part of life, in your personal as much as it is in your business life, you know, because every day we're having to solve problems of different sizes, different natures, and the opportunity that can come from that. So, you know, I've been very fortunate working in the current industry because it's what I've always wanted to do. And I therefore consider what I've done to be more of a hobby and a vocation than it is actually a job because 
I love what I do and I love working in the industry of industries, one that fundamentally has such a profound impact in our society and how we live because transportation and the car, you know, I'm speaking to you as an American, you know, where the car has been at the heart of the cultural revolution, you know, in the US because it's been liberty. It's about freedom and it's about that choice and self-determination to do what you want when you can. And the car is the enabler for that. But we're at the precipice now of probably one of the greatest changes in the car industry that you know, that there's ever been, you know, the advent of electrification, but also what that heralds in terms of the shift towards autonomous and also mobility as a service that fundamentally is reshaping. So there's never been a more exciting time to be working in this industry of industries and be a part of shaping that future and contributing, you know, uh, to it. Yeah, it blows me away what's going on. And I've had over the last about six months, a lot of people on the show that work in the EV world, the battery technology world. I've never seen things change so fast in my life. And I'm really excited about what the future is going to bring. And when I saw your business, I went, okay, we need to talk because (laughs) what you guys have created here with ZipCharge is basically you've you've taken away one of those big barriers for people about owning uh, electric cars. So let's talk about what zip charge is. You know, when I looked at this, my first thought was this is akin to having a gas can you can carry in your car. Uh, But of course, we're talking about EV. So tell me about how this whole concept came about and describe to our listeners today. And of course, I always put links to my guest show notes page. You can go and see this product in action because it's so cool. Zip charge. Tell me all about it. Sure. So the idea, the initial idea for a portable, you know, uh, what you'd call a jerry can or, you know, a power bank, depending on your perspective. And we'll come to discuss more about the difference between the two. Um, Actually came from my co-founder, Richie. His brother lives in a part of London, uh, similar to where I do where we don't um, have any parking. We don't have driveways. We don't have garages. We live in what's called a terraced house, which is basically houses all connected together, what you'd call a townhouse in the US. But even with a townhouse in the US, it's not uncommon to have a driveway and or a garage that can sometimes go along with it. Whereas here, everybody's left to park on the street. That means you can't have a home charge point because you can't put cables across the sidewalk. You can't, you know, you've got no way to charge it. So you're reliant on public infrastructure. His brother had bought an electric vehicle. He was going to the local uh, Shell gas station to use the public charger there, but quickly found even with the, you know, the rise and a small number of EVs on the road that he was having to queue at most times in order to try to access it. So he said to his brother, knowing what he did as an electrical engineer, surely you must be able to come up with a way to solve this problem. So kind of Richie scratched his head and went, yeah, we could make something that's a portable battery, something that would allow you to charge it and then put the charge into the vehicle. And that's where the genesis of the idea was born. I came on board um, because we've known each other for about 18 years from when we've worked at McLaren together. So, you know, we've always been in touch and friends um, and then basically helped turn the idea into a product you know so one that's relevant who's the market what who is the customer you know how do we develop a product that has value for the customer how does it solve the problem what is the problem and how can we therefore turn that into something of value value for the customer and then value for us to grow a business from and that's that's the journey we've been on over the last um, 18 months or so is 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 to realize that vision which is what you see in the go today um so when we looked at that you know the the 
whilst his brother's situation, you know, is replicated by many other people, actually there's a broader opportunity here. Rather than thinking about it as a jerry can, so an emergency tool, something you take with you so in case you run out of gas, it's far more empowering to think about the device as a power bank, just like for your mobile phone. Everyone typically has a power bank for their mobile phone and you plug it in when you can. You don't necessarily use your power bank when it, the battery on your phone goes to zero. Yeah, you actually plug it in as and when you can. You graze, you don't gorge. And this is a <laughs> common, common, you know, terminology that's yeah. used. Whereas with an internal combustion engine, if you've got a gas, you know, uh, powered car, you pretty much gorge. You let it go till the light comes on and then you go take it to the gas station and you fill it up. But that's not the same behavior with an electric car because you have far more ready access to energy, principally to home and ways of refueling it. It's not like you have a gas station in your garage or on your driveway at home that allows you to refuel as and when you need it but you do have electricity everywhere so when you have an electric vehicle and i own one today you know you very much um charge little but often you know you go to the grocery store and you charge up there if there is one you top up at home and you top up here and actually the behavior when you have an electric vehicle is very different because you realize you never have to drive to the gas station again and here I'm very much in agreement with the CEO of ChargePoint, um, who's uh, in America, uh, and he believes that the gas station model is redundant, much to the chagrin of, you know, the likes of the Aramcos and the Chevrons and everybody else, because they want to sustain their business for the future. And I agree, you know, people don't want to drive to a charging station. They don't want to have to drive somewhere and wait 15, 20 minutes, even in the advent of super fast charging batteries, which will take some time to get here. You know, um, you're still going to have to wait. A certain period of time, certainly longer than it takes to fill up your tank with gas today. So um, our view was say, OK, so how do we create something that's more empowering? How do we do create something that can be used every day? How do we create something that can help enable people to make the switch? Because when you look at a lot of the data, the number one reason why people reject an electric vehicle today Partially is price, partially is what used to be called range anxiety, but the number one reason quoted now is charging anxiety. People are fundamentally concerned about how am I going to charge, where am I going to charge it? And the place that they're most concerned about it is at home. And the reason why is because your car is parked at home the majority of the time when you're not using it. It's either at work or it's at home. And particularly in the post-COVID era, you know, where people are going into the office less, your car's even parked even more at home, you know. So the need for charging where your vehicle is parked is critical. But the challenge is you've got 40% of car owners, and that's the consistent number around the world. It changes country by country, who don't have access to off-street parking and therefore they can't put a charger in. But in the US, it's even broader because if you rent, you know, you can't put a charge point in. But if you live in a condo or if you live in a multi-unit dwelling, which is also you know, common in in the United States, you know, you've got homeowners, homeowner association rules that restrict you from being able to install a charge point. You have metering issues because often in those buildings and condos, it's a communal area and it's a shared meter and it's part of a, you know, a maintenance cost for the building, the maintenance charge you pay for the building. So, you know, you have a real problem about installing charge points in a way that allows people to charge individually. And when you don't have everybody with an EV, it therefore becomes a big issue to be able to solve. Yeah. So our journey was really about trying to create that product, something that was small enough, compact enough, but with enough energy and range that would deliver the people's uh, daily driving needs. So in the United States, it's 26.5 miles. When you look at the uh, travel surveys done by uh, the US Census Bureau, um, 26.5 miles is the current average. And that was pre-COVID. Um, that's not 
homogeneously distributed across all of the US states. You know, clearly in Wyoming and Utah, you know, you're going to be doing more. You do 35, 36, 37, you travel more distances. But when you look at New York and California and even Florida, the three main markets where electric vehicles are sold in the US, um, the actual driving distance is in the low 20 miles a day. Um, And in Europe, that figure is about 17, 18 miles. It's slightly higher in Germany. UK is about 17, 18. But pretty much generally around the world, everyone drives on a daily basis, on average, somewhere between 15 to 25 miles. And therefore, our product delivers a range in a Tesla Model 3, um, the world's biggest selling you know, uh, electric vehicle, of between 20 and 40 miles. So therefore, it's enough to give you your daily range needs so you can top it up every day. You don't even have to top up once. You could top up twice or three times because it's super easy to charge. You plug it into any socket. It charges up in just over an hour. You wheel it to your vehicle and it takes half an hour to discharge. And then you've added your kind of daily range. You could even then take it to work with you. You could plug it in at work, get electricity for free if your employer doesn't mind. Yeah. And then charge it in your, you know, your lunch break. You know, you've got so many different options. And the reason why is because you can turn any parking space into a charging spot. So instead of being re- reliant on charging infrastructure, which has a one-to-one relationship with the parking space, you can make any parking space able to charge your vehicle by having wow. that charger. <laughs> so, you know, what we're trying to do is turn that concept of charging on its head. We say we want to add a new dimension and that new dimension is around flexibility. So whilst it might not give you all of the energy you need, it can give you enough energy for your daily needs and therefore supplement it. And therefore we think that's a good thing. It's a good thing because it can encourage more people to adopt electric vehicles. Now, depending on your perspective on climate change, you know, if we can encourage more people to adopt electric vehicles and therefore make that shift, then theoretically, the better it is for society and also, you know, the challenges that we face to he- to, uh, ahead as a, as, a, as a world. So, you know, our view is this is a nudge technology, something that can really encourage people to make that switch. It's not something that's replacing existing charging infrastructure. It's a complementary addition to how people will cha- charge their vehicle, but also solve a very big problem for 40% of people that own cars and drive cars that won't be able to charge. And in a world of tomorrow where everybody has to have an electric vehicle, it's slightly different in the US, but, you know, in Europe, they're saying 2030, they're all going to be banned. Um, You'll only ever be able to buy electric or a plug-in hybrid for a certain period of time for five years in the UK at least. You know, then everyone's going to need to be able to have access to low-cost, convenient charging anywhere you park. And that's ultimately what we deliver. Holy cow. Man, yeah, this is pretty cool. I think back to uh, a company I worked before, we sold a lot of things for garages and cars. And one of the things was a battery pack so you could, if your battery goes dead. And this thing was about the size of a briefcase. It weighed about the size of 20 bricks. And it was kind of a pain and so forth. And then I look at what you're, now this is old, long ago. Now I'm looking at what you're doing. It looks like a roller board that you could take on an airplane and put above. Very small, obviously not massively heavy because looking at it, your videos on your site, you pick it up, you can put it in your trunk. Yeah. I think it's absolutely marvelous. And um, that's why I wanted to have you on the show. And again, I'll encourage you listeners to go check out the links to the website so you can see what we're talking about. I think it's going to blow everyone away. My son lives in San Francisco, doesn't have a garage, uh, lives in a kind of a condo type thing. And same thing. He goes, you know, we'd buy a Tesla tomorrow, but we 
it's we, we can't can't really use it very effectively and uh, they have a bit of a drive when they do go down to the office but most of the time they're working at home but this would be a resolving re- resounding solution to his challenge uh, which would fix things right away so very exciting we're going to take a short break and thank our sponsors we come back I want to talk a little bit about your personal passion for cars because I understand you kind of like vehicles like you said your second word was car not your first word when you were a baby so we'll be right back this is cool stuff auto geeks Blackfire sio2 spray sealant it's a spray on wipe off sealant that's quick safe and easy to clean and protect your vehicles i love using it on all my cars Auto Geek's Blackfire SiO2 spray sealant is a spray-on wipe-away sealant that uses SiO2 ingredients to provide a slick, brilliant, and long-lasting shine. Silicon dioxide is known to be one of the most effective ingredients in car care products, and Blackfire spray sealant takes advantage of every stunning feature it has to offer. This sealant will protect your paint from road film, dirt, and other common contaminants while providing an impeccable, long-lasting hydrophobic surface that forces water to sheet and bead on your paint for months. Go to autogeek.net to get yours and for the best product selections on the internet today, along with their skilled technical support. Autogeek.net is where I go for all my detailing needs. That's autogeek.net. Check them out today. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, and their goal is is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. I've discovered... Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion. And mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions. Ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARSYEAH when you subscribe and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. So, Jonathan, let's talk about, um, before we talk about your passion for cars, I want to talk about a big challenge because you've worked in businesses in a career that's all about startups, innovation. 
I mean, your whole day is one big challenge day after day after day. Uh, some people really love that. Other people are scared to death of it. But maybe we talk about one big challenge you'd like to share. And more importantly, what was that really valuable lesson? Because challenges are great when they teach us things, even if they push us our backs against the wall. Yeah, probably one of the the things from my career I'd point to is when I set up in motion ventures for Jaguar Land Rover, which was not a traditional way that large car company went about thinking about innovation and mobility and how it's changing in the future. You know, as every car company now, whether it's Ford, GM, you know, it doesn't really matter. They have to think in about business model transformation and they have to think about how they change their products because there's so much level of competition and disruption that's coming at them from all angles, uh, you know, whether yeah. that's a Tesla or an energy company or another startup, it doesn't really matter. So this was back in 2013. And I had to help convince a business that was very risk averse because, you know, you know, the history of Jaguar Land Rover and in recent years in 2008, it almost turned off the lights, you know, it almost went bankrupt. It was just hours, you know, away from from that that challenge. And so the business has a culture of being very conscious about every dollar equivalent that it spent every pound. So there I was saying, well, look, you, we're, the business is going really well because of all the Land Rovers it was selling and the Evoque and the Range Rover and Range Rover Sport. You, you say, look, you need to think about change. But the business is going, oh, but we don't need to because everything's great. OK, but think about five or 10 years time where maybe everything isn't so great. Right? How do you protect yourself for that future? So I had a huge amount of a huge challenge to be able to help convince people internally to think about an alternative future and for the business to think about that within the time frame of its everyday operations. You've got to remember in a car company, it's very much it's an industrial machine. It's thinking not only in the day to day of producing a car and producing, you know, 60 cars an hour from a factory or even up to 100 cars an hour. Uh, and how does it get those out to the dealers to then get into the hands of customers? And how do we therefore get the cash in? And that industrial machine has to be fed, you know, and it has to be fed and also controlled in a way that delivers a high quality, safe product that meets all of the regular compliance that a car has to do from a crash and an emissions and everything else, which is really, really difficult. So when the business is in that kind of mindset, it's very difficult to say, well, think about 10, 15, 20 years hence, how's it going to change and how do you protect your business? So it took me a long time to be able to work even at the most senior levels with the CEO and the board to be able to help them understand that future, but then also to get them to believe in me and what I was advocating about how we could disrupt how large corporates innovated taking a lot of the learning from the valley, Silicon Valley, you know, in this way of how do you fail fast and how do you experiment and think about things in a way that a large corporate typically wouldn't do that. And, you know, whilst that's not uncommon now in 2022, even nine years ago in 2023, that was highly unusual for, for most car companies, never mind, you know, uh, one that's based in the UK that had almost turned out the light a few years ago. So, you know, I eventually found a way to be able to convince them because I ended up going to the board because no one asked me to do this. I, I went to them proactively and tried to convince them with a business plan. I was an entrepreneur in some regards because I was trying to get them to believe in me and the idea that I was presenting to them. It meant I had to ask for money. That's always a difficult ask. It doesn't matter who you're asking, whether it's your dad for pocket money or, you know, or, <laughs> sure. or whatever it might be. Never mind the CEO of, uh, you know, a very large car company to, you know, give you several millions that you need in order to go set something up. So I found that I went to them and said, look, this is what I'm going to do. And here's the financial opportunity. They didn't believe me. Go away. Try harder. Yeah. I went back the second time and said, OK, in the time that we you didn't approve my you know, uh, proposal the first time, this is what the competition has done. And because at that time, Jaguar Land Rover 
had a number of German seniors within the organization. They always looked to BMW and what Mercedes were doing. So, um, you know, I said, look, this is what Mercedes and Audi and, Merce- and, and BMW have done in the in the intervening months. Oh, yeah. Interesting. OK, yeah, I can see. Yeah. But no, go away. Try harder. <laughs> so then I went away again, recut all the business case and transformed everything. And then I came back to them and said, here's the opportunity cost of not doing what I'm telling you. And at that point, then they went, ah, because the opportunity cost was based on the forecast of plans of the core business that they thought was a, almost a certainty. Uh, but when yeah. you came along and you told them, actually, what you're planning for success could actually never materialize to the extent that you believe, because there's an unseen and also a level of change taking place that you cannot control, then actually you need to prepare for that future as a defensive mechanism for you know the opportunity that you could lose in the future. And it wasn't until that point did then the light bulbs go on and there was a trigger point that then allowed them to be more amenable and you know uh, and willing to listen to my proposal and eventually give me the money that I needed to go off and set in motion ventures up for for Jaguar Land Rover so that's probably one being one of the challenges I mean that's a very short version of the story I could write a book on it <laughs> yeah. um, but ultimately I think it uh, gives you a flavor of some of the advices even if you even if you get knocked back never give up that's advice number one number two always find creative ways to help tell a story that will resonate with your audience and you can tell that in a number of different ways and number three try to find the trigger that will get people to hook into your idea and your story that will then get you the permission to be able to do what you want to do so that's that's what i'd say i think you do need a book or maybe a podcast you know (laughs) to share all that it's fascinating and i think every company and even down to every individual individual needs what's what you just call an entrepreneur, either someone else or someone within the organization that's working kind of like you think of the skunk works of the old Ford Motor Company when Carroll Shelby yep. would go out and build the GT40 or uh, the GT350 or any of the cars they'd done to give those guys up in the ivory towers or that are looking at all this other current stuff, another vision of the future that they really can't have. They, they just not enough time in the day. It's a fascinating story. I mm. love it. Really, really cool. Let's talk a little bit about your personal passion for cars. You mentioned that early on that when you were a little kid, you could identify cars at the age of three. Tell us about a special vehicle in your life. Yeah, it'd have to probably be the first car I owned, you know, pretty much like everybody. For many, if you're American listeners, they won't probably know what it is, but it's quite a storied car to have when you're 17 years old. You've got to remember driving, you know, requirements are different, not only in the US and States, you know, but also in Europe, it's slightly different. So we can drive when we're 17 in the UK. And uh, so I was 17 and I had a Peugeot 205, okay. uh, 1.9 GTI. Now, if anybody knows what that is, they know that that's quite a famous, what was a, you know, it, it went rallying, you know, so it did Monte Carlo rally and everything else. But at the time you had this a small car, fast car war between the French and you had the Renault 5, you know, GT Turbo, you had the Peugeot with the 205 1.9 GTI and the Peugeot really was the daddy. It was, it was also a hedge killer, you know, and because if you weren't careful, you'd spin you around and put you in the back of a hedge. (laughs) hedge killer. Um, Now that's the first time I've heard that term. (laughs) But it's, but it's, but at 17 years old to have at that time was about 150 horsepower, which you, everyone in the US go, well, what's that from a four cylinder engine? But when you got a vehicle that's weighing 700 150 kilos you know and this you got to remember this is in 19 
when was I 17 yeah so 1995 <laughs> kind of thing so you know so it's it's a you know it's a long time 1994 1995 it was an incredible car to have at that age but I guess the cars that are most memorable are the ones that I perhaps haven't owned but I've had the privilege of driving you got to remember I was working at McLaren at 23 I was like a um a kid in a sweetie shop I was working at the uh, in a supercar company where I was responsible not only for all of the competitor intelligence which meant I could get whatever car I needed in for evaluation. I got to drive all of the supercars at 23 years old, take them home, oh you know, drive them, gosh. drive them on the Dunsfold test track. So, you know, Top Gear and in the UK, they use a most a circuit. They used to when it was Clarkson and the rest of them. They still use it now for the current version of, of Top Gear, just not as often. It's the one that the stig drives around yeah. and i know you have top gear usa but there's the there's obviously the british version so because mclaren's not far from there that used to be one of the proving areas that we'd take all the cars and we'd evaluate them so i was 23 driving lamborghini gallardo 360 430 you know oh you name gosh. it porsche gt2 uh, and i'd be t- taking them around not only was i trained and had driver training and you know taught to drive properly uh, and driven cars alongside the likes of chris goodwin who was the test driver at mclaren then went to aston martin and he's a racer as well um you know you were taking the vehicles around uh, the dunsfold test track around hammerhead you know and you were playing at being jeremy clarkson i was 23 24 years old you know you didn't get any better than that <laughs> you know when you're someone who's every passionate day. About <laughs> but yeah but i never had to pay gas I never had to pay insurance, you know, and I got to take the vehicles home, Best you know, of overnight, all worlds. Yeah. You, know, you know, so, so I guess you, you, many, many different driving experiences, you know, and very fortunate, but I love cars in any regard. I love when I go traveling and I get a rental car. I love the lottery of never knowing what I'm going to get. And therefore, with the joy or the pain that ensues from learning about that car. But the one thing I'd say that I've always done, and it's the one thing I did at McLaren and I got our engineers to do in particular was when we appraised a vehicle, I always tried to get people to wash it and to clean it because you learn so much about a car when you clean it. You learn so much about the fit, the finish, the quality, and ultimately how the vehicle feels that ultimately, you know, tells you a huge amount about the character of the car. And you have to remember that behind every vehicle is a team of thousands of engineers, people that have produced it. And each car has its unique story, has a unique story about its birth, its creation, who it was serving. And one of the best ways to be able to appreciate that is actually to wash it and to clean it and it sounds strange but you know a lot of my experiences with cars are equally as fun from behind the wheel as it is with a sponge and a chamois leather in my hand you know being able to to wash them as well and in fact one of the pictures i have on my wall over here is me as a i think i'm about one and a half two year old with my dad's car washing it you know even in those early eight you know in those early ages washing my dad's ford avenger if anybody knows what a ford avenger is it was a european ford product not a great one uh, most of the cars in the 70s they rusted much like they did you know in the uk as they did in the us right so uh but yeah i've got uh, every picture even those that are behind me of uh, all the cars i've worked on and had the privilege to be a part of and play a role in in helping conceive them you know because that's it you work with the designers you define the product you understand what it's about you say this is the target market 
and you then translate that into a product that you, you that you ensure is going to meet the needs of that customer and deliver the best possible value for them. Because when you engineer a car, everything is a trade-off. And most people don't realize it's just a case of where do you draw the line and what kind of trade-off do you make? Typically, those trade-offs are between performance and cost, weight, you know, and a variety of other factors. And some companies make those trade-off decisions better than others. And it's why having worked for McLaren, why I still maintain that the McLaren F1 is still the greatest car ever made, because it's the car that has the least amount of trade-offs and compromise ever in in, in its engineering, because everything was done in the pursuit of no compromise, right. you know, whereas the reality is even a Ferrari of today has a degree of compromise because, you know, it has to be built. It has to be engineered to cost. It has to have a business case behind it. So it's very, very difficult to find a vehicle today that is doesn't have some form of compromise behind it. Yeah. You know, I understand what you're saying 100%. I'm the same way when it comes to washing a car and seeing all those things. I think it was Gordon Murray that said he was asked if there's one thing you would have changed on that F1. And he said, yeah, there was a hood latch that we could have probably made in one piece instead of two. You know, it was that kind of, but yeah, if only all cars could be, could be made that way. I'm going to crawl into your skull and be a little bit of a psychologist for you today. If you were manifest as a vehicle, Jonathan, what would you be? But more importantly, why? Oh, that's a really interesting and difficult question to say as I put on the spoke. Can it be a modern car or can it be any car from history? Here's the way you need to think of this. It's not what you want to be. It's how you perceive the man in the mirror, yourself as a human being in a vehicle. So could be a Ford F-150 truck or it could be a McLaren F-1. I don't know. That's where you've got to dig deep into your mind. Yeah, I don't think it's a McLaren F-1 because I'm certainly not highbrow enough. I'm from the north of England, you know, so, <laughs> you know, I, I'm very much, uh, in English you say a spade is a spade, you know, so I think I'd be... I think I'd probably be something part Italian because I'm part Italian as well as being British. I'd love to say an, a classic 1960s alpha, maybe a duetto, something that's got some longevity, something that people really appreciate and admire for what it is. It's not necessarily the highest performance, but it doesn't really matter because it's good fun along the way. So perhaps that's a good enough thing to say as an example. I think that makes sense. Yeah, that was that was probably easier than you thought. So there you go. I like it. So let's talk about a great book that you've read that you'd like to share with our listeners. I love to talk about books, love about love books. Is there a book that you'd recommend? Yeah, an automotive book. I'm actually just going to turn around and show it. Okay. Actually, I'm going to recommend McLaren Memories. Oh, I've got a copy of that book. Uh, Have you got a copy of that book? Yeah. If you think about McLaren and its history, it's actually defined in three parts. First is the McLaren, Bruce McLaren era. Then there's the Ron Dennis era. And then there's the post Ron Dennis era. Effectively, those are the three kind of mega chapters of of McLaren. And being someone passionate about cars, when I went to McLaren, I was very, not only did I do tours of the factory as part of my, you know, job and taking people around. And I'm talking about the McLaren Technology Center, the one that you've seen that's shaped as a yin and a yang and, you know, the lake and everything else like that. I was also fascinated by the, the real history of McLaren and where it came from, but also the story of Bruce McLaren, which is really, really powerful. And if anybody hasn't, uh, you know, listened to it about what this guy had to go to as a child in particular, because he had uh, a lot of uh, physical challenges that he had to overcome to then obviously start racing in his original, you know, little Cooper and then doing his hill climbs. And then fundamentally how then he used that as a way to get over into, you know, other series of racing and then come over to Europe because that's where it was for racing at the time. And then to found his team. And then you look at the history of their success in what was a great series. And I'll hear, I'll talk about Can-Am because those Can-Am beasts, oh. you know, they, I mean, if you hear those go, if you, I've heard one start up, oh my God, it shakes the foundations of a building, you know, with the straight pipes 
And, you know, you look at the size of them and then you look at pictures of Denny Hume. If you know Denny Hume and the pictures of Denny Hume, he was like he was called the bear and he had arms and forearms like the bear. Because to drive one of those Can-Am cars, you needed to be (laughs) physically capable of driving a Can-Am. But you look at the history of those McLarens, the Indianapolis car that also won at Indianapolis, the Can-Am cars, as well as then the Formula One cars at the time. And it's an incredible journey that he went on from his beginnings in New Zealand, his uh, his challenges that he had physically to have to overcome, and then the sad tragedy of his loss of his life. And if you think about what McLaren could have continued to be, and even before the McLaren F1 and what the supercar company is today, Bruce had dreams to create his um, first McLaren road car, and he produced one of them. In fact, there was a couple. He always had ambitions to create a car company, and that was always at the forefront. And when we were creating a little bit of the McLaren history within what is the supercar company of McLaren today is that history of Bruce McLaren, his vision, and also, you know, his attitude. As much as Ron Dennis shaped McLaren and how it came to be what it does, a lot of it remains the story of Bruce and his history of, of what he achieved. Yeah, that's a it's a marvelous book. Uh, it was written by uh, Young. I forget the first name. I- Ian Young. I Ian. Think yeah. Uh, yeah. Marvelous book. Yeah. It's yeah. You're right. E O I N Young. Yeah. Yeah. It's the well. It's the Welsh spelling of Ian. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. And yeah, love the McLaren history. Everything about it. Back when that F1 was being built, I got a special tour at the factory to go see that car being built because I was importing Facom tools and Facom was supplying tools to uh, McLaren at the time. I think they're also their F1 team. We got to go to that their f1 factory um for the not the street car but the race car uh, as well and it was just like oh my gosh this is incredible and uh yeah who'd have thought if only i'd had about what they were half million seven hundred fifty thousand when they were new now they're 20 25 million oh yeah cars. what a great investment you know yeah well but i didn't have that to begin with back then so <laughs> it didn't matter but it's a great book yeah the history of bruce mclaren is absolutely Fantastic. So I'm going to allow you to go on the ultimate drive. I'm your dream come true because money's no object here at Cars Yeah today. You can pick any car. You can pick any person to be with, living or someone who's passed, and you can be driving anywhere in this vehicle. So what does that ultimate drive look like for a definitely a car guy like you? I'd love to relive my memory from when I was a youth. My grandfather, who, who I, you know, kind of hold responsible for my uh, passion in cars, he was a mechanic. He was actually a um, marine, an equivalent of a marine for, for the UK in the British Army. Uh, he fought in the Second World War, um, and he was a paratrooper. So he uh, was, you know, t- going out of aircraft with the parachutes to then land behind enemy lines, you know, in Yikes. the Second World War. He unfortunately on one of those jumps. He landed and he hurt his ankle and uh, they had to move him, you know, um, onto something else. So they moved him into one of the regiments where he began fixing tanks. Um, And he actually used to, when the tanks would break down on the front line, he'd have to take his um, recovery truck to go and, you know, pick up the tank, avoiding being shelled and, you know, mortared at the time. Yeah, yeah, go pick up that tank. There's a panzer over there shooting at it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then drag it back and then fix it. So I've got all his original manuals of things he's written out about the mechanical so i've got those from the 1940s uh, in my cupboard somewhere that i'll always keep he then stayed in italy uh, you know because he was stationed in italy uh, during the war because you had the germans and the uh, at the south and then the allies at the north and the americans obviously were there as well with the british and um um he then came back to the uk with his wife from italy you know which is why i'm part italian and um 
he became a driving instructor. So, and when I was a little child, I used to go out with him on his lessons and it was a Datsun Sunny. It was like a light pale blue and this would have been in the 19, early 1980s. Um, and uh, he was teaching his students to drive, but he would take me out with him and he would give me the opportunity just to say, be quiet, you know, sit in the back. <laughs> but, you know, I would be there listening, watching and being part of him. So I'd love to recreate that because my grandfather has never been able to see what I've been able to accomplish in my career or, you know, see a part of it. But I'd love to have that opportunity to be in his company again and be in that car. And whilst I'm not driving, you know, it's one of those memories that's imprinted on my mind and one that I'd very much love to experience again. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Pretty darn cool. I love it. What a great story. You know, you've taken us on a wonderful journey today and a journey into the past and journey into the future. And that's been pretty darn special. Before I let you go, is there maybe a inspirational quote or some words of wisdom you might share with us today? Always be the pebble on the seashore, you know, no matter how difficult things get and being in this life, you know, you'll always cup against people that perhaps don't believe in you. Always have faith, always believe in yourself. And when things get bad, just let it all wash over you and be that pebble on the seashore. And I think, you know, for me, um, that's always stood me well. Uh, increasingly, as I've got more mature and more grumpier as I've got an old man, <laughs> as I am now, um, and ultimately, you know, being able to think about how you let things go as opposed to holding on to them. Um, and I think that can do us all a world of good. I have never heard that saying, and I love it. It's absolutely wonderful. I grew up in the ocean surfing as a kid and always be the pebble on the seashore. Now, is that a, is that a British saying? Uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, it's not a common British saying, you okay. know, it's not a, but it's just a way of saying, you know, no matter what happens, let just let things over. wash over you. I love that. I need to, I need to, like put that right in front of me on my computer every day. I get a little tangled up when things don't go the way I want them to go. Always be the pebble on the seashore. How can people learn more about ZipCharge? They can go to our website, which is zipcharge.global. You don't even need to type the www dot, but you can if you prefer. Um, and you can follow us on all of the social media platforms. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um, you can connect to me on LinkedIn. We also have LinkedIn profile for ZipCharge. Um, and also I'd encourage anybody that's interested in buying one of our units to register for pre-orders, which you can do on our website. There's a simple form um, as well as very shortly we'll be sending out some questionnaires because we want to identify people for trial um those people who can test the unit and give us some valuable feedback um cool. so we'll you know we're encouraging people to to sign up for that as well jonathan carrier changing the future with the zip charge this is so exciting i love the look of the future for all of us i think this is absolutely incredible you've encharged me or i should say charged me up today here jonathan this is absolutely brilliant i want to do a shout out to uh jules at influency mobility he's the one who introduced me to jonathan thank you jules this has been great bringing great people to cars yeah to share their stories jonathan Hey, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for uh, changing the world. This is so exciting. Can't wait to talk to you again someday. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road with a car that's fully charged. Thank you, Mo. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!